0: Should you bother reporting that slight fender bender to your insurance company or not? Then, how to bulletproof your career in a changing economy, and it is changing. For example,
1: if you look at when they made King Kong back in 1933, there were only about 113 crew members on that movie. But if you look to the more recent King Kong movie back in 2005, 1,700 people worked on that movie. I think there's a parallel there in a lot of the business world. Everything's bigger, everything's more complex.
0: Plus, is it more efficient to turn off the AC when no one's home or leave it on? And how do you respond to advertising? And there is so much advertising.
2: Well, a a terrifying statistic is that uh, advertisers pay for 4,500 messages per person per day in this country. That's an advertisement every 14 seconds for every man, woman, and, and child
0: breathing in the US. All this today on Something You Should Know. Are you one of those people who just buys things with whatever credit cards you grab out of your wallet? Well, that, that could be a costly move. NerdWallet, you've heard of NerdWallet, NerdWallet lets you compare credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. So if, for example, you like travel rewards, you can see which credit card gives you better rewards than the credit cards you've got now. Think of what you could do with better rewards. A free flight, room upgrades, who knows. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and so much more at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply.
1: Mm-hmm. Something you should know. Fascinating Intel, the world's top experts and practical advice you can use in your life. Today. something you should know with Mike Carruthers.
0: Hi, welcome. You know, I've been very fortunate in my life in that I have only been involved in, I think, yeah, two relatively minor, two relatively minor car crashes in my driving career. But if you drive long enough, sooner or later, you're bound to get involved in at least a fender bender or two. And when two vehicles are involved and the damage is minor, it can be very tempting to skip the hassle of calling your insurance company or filing a police report and just work it out between the drivers. However, Consumer Reports says that those private arrangements rarely work out. Seemingly minor damage to a bumper can cost over $5,000 to repair, which is much more than most people expect. And then there's always the possibility that the other driver, after they've talked to a couple of people, decide that now their neck hurts and now they're going to sue you and why didn't you call the insurance company? And so really, the only time you shouldn't report an accident is a low-speed single-car mishap close to home, like backing into your own fence or your own garage. If there are no injuries and the damage is below or close to your deductible, Well, then you might as well skip the report, otherwise you're probably better off filing that report. And that is something you should know. Whatever job you have now, whatever industry you work in now, those things are very likely to change and change soon. You probably won't have the same job or be in the same industry five, six, seven years from now because things are changing so quickly. I know many people who, for example, work in the radio business, where I spent a big part of my career, and they're now struggling to find something else to do because the radio industry is shrinking, and so are a lot of other industries. Yet new industries are growing, and your ability to navigate all this will determine how successful you ultimately are in your career. So how do you do it? Well, here with some very insightful answers is Neil Irwin. Neil is a senior economic correspondent at the New York Times and author of the book, How to Win in a Winner-Take-All
1: World. Hi, Neil. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me.
0: So anyone who works knows that things are shifting, that there's an instability, and not necessarily all in a bad way, but industries and companies seem to be changing faster and faster, and people are having to make sure they keep up like never before, right?
1: Yeah, I think we all know that this old world where you start a job when you're in your 20s and you keep your nose to the grindstone and work hard and, and uh, can just rise through the ranks and stay that organization for 30 years, uh, that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, business today, it's so fast changing. The entire business model around major industries is shifting beneath our feet. Uh, and I think the goal for all of us is to have a durable career, even against that backdrop, even when things are changing all the time.
0: Is this perception that things are changing very quickly, that industries are coming and going at this incredibly fast pace, is this perception real? Because other industries in the past have come and gone, and people have adjusted to that. The horse and buggy disappeared, the automobile showed up. You know, there used to be a guy that delivered ice to your house. Uh, He doesn't do that anymore. So there there are industries that have come and gone. Is the pace picking up?
1: So it's always been the case that there's change. You know, the nature of a capitalist economy is that there's going to be businesses that succeed and others that fail. I think there was something that existed in the in the 20th century where if you joined a, a big successful company, uh, you really could just kind of keep your nose clean and, and stay there for a long time. Um, and, you know, there, there are still organizations where you can stay for a long time. I'm not saying that's gone away. What I am describing is a major shift in the economy that's happened in which these large dominant companies are more powerful than ever, uh, bigger drivers of employment and wages than ever. And I believe there's a very specific way you can become the person who can succeed in those types of organizations that's different from what that looked like in the 20th century or or before.
0: So describe that shift.
1: Everything is digital these days. Essentially, every industry is a software industry in some ways. So if you go to banking or you go to uh, retail, you go to healthcare. More and more of the terms of competition are around who has the best algorithms, the best software. You know, when I choose a bank, I'm partly deciding who has the best mobile app, who has the most ATM machines. And that shift makes uh, the the very structure of these industries different than it used to be. And that implies different ways of working. You have to be more able to work in in teams that involve people with very different technical skills. You have to have more adaptability and willingness to change as the business models change. And that's what I I think is the crucial thing if you want to have a durable career, not just for the next few years, but for the next few decades.
0: So since industries are changing the way they do business, how do we as individuals need to change?
1: You know, it used to be there was a career ladder. You started as a junior person and you got better and better at that job. And then you would eventually, you know, oversee other people who did that same thing uh, in a very linear way. I think the key now is to think of it as a lattice. Uh, You start with one technical specialty, whether you're in, you know, you might be in finance or you might be in customer service or strategy or whatever it might be. Um, And then as you go, you don't just get better and better at that one thing. You gain experiences across different types of functional areas. You become the person who Yeah, you know some software engineering, you know some finance, you know some marketing, you know some strategy. You see better and better how these modern products that involve lots of software, lots of technological complexity, how they fit together. You need to understand how the pieces fit together. I call it being a glue person, somebody who can work on a team and speak the different languages of these different advanced skills and make sure that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts.
0: Can you give me an example of an industry and how that industry has changed which would then require that the people in that industry also have changed.
1: I'm fascinated by the movie business, right? This is, a, in some ways, a kind of metaphor for what's happened in the business world as a whole. So if you look at when they made King Kong back in 1933, there were only about 113 crew members on that movie. Then in the 1970s, they made another King Kong movie, about the same size crew, same basic, you know, you had people doing effects, people doing sound, all that type of stuff. But if you look to the more recent King Kong movie back in 2005, 1,700 people worked on that movie. They were all over the planet. They had all kinds of advanced technical skills that brought to bear to create these you know, 3D larger than life uh, characters and animals and creatures on screen. Um, I think there's a parallel there in a lot of the business world. Everything's bigger. Everything's more complex. So I, I went to New Zealand to a place called Weta Digital, which is one of these digital effects studios that made the King Kong movie and Lord of the Rings and Avatar and a bunch of other things in that vein. I met a guy named Marco Revelant, And Marco is an Italian guy who is kind of the classic example of this glue person I'm talking about. And what Marco is, he's a modeler, but he also knows how the software engineers work. So when they have to build a tool to enable him to to work on the fur of King Kong or work on these uh, recent Planet of the Apes movies, he knows how to work with the software engineers to develop the tools that enables him to do that. He was literally the guy who groomed King Kong. Um, and uh, at the same time, he can deal with the artists. He knows how to communicate with the directors, the visual artists who are trying to create these, company, these uh, characters out of whole cloth. Um, and seeing the connection between these hardcore coders who uh, don't really speak the artistic language and these artists who don't, certainly don't speak the, the coder's language enables them to create products that make great movies. And I think you see that across all kinds of products. You see that in all these different industries that might not be movies, but might be a, a great app that you use, or might be uh, you know, a great retail product or a great financial product. And, and I think there's a real lesson there that you want to be like Marco. You want to be the person who is not afraid of, uh, of people with different... Kinds of expertise than you, and can help be the glue that pulls those teams together.
0: Is this true? Do you think for jobs and industries that that seemingly don't change all that much, or is this very much a high techy, algorithmy kind of uh, strategy you're
1: talking about? I think what we're seeing is even industries that on their surface don't seem to change very much. Uh, there's a lot of change happening beneath the surface. And uh, you know the, the, some examples of that are, are retail, All right, So if you go into a store today, it might look the same as it did uh, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. But beneath the surface, retailers are having to be much more sophisticated about you know, what they call omni-channel uh, uh, services, where they're all competing with Amazon. They're all trying to have the best ability to create, put the inventory in front of you that you want to buy Uh, to make sure their shelves are stocked, to make sure that they're providing the best possible customer service, to make sure they have the best mobile app. So even industries that seem static are actually changing in ways that are pretty fundamental. So, but when you say, uh, you
0: know, you have to be adaptable and you have to be a glue person, what does that look like in a much more granular way? So you do what differently today than you did yesterday if you adopt that idea?
1: Well, I'll give you an example from my industry. So I'm a newspaper reporter, right? When I started 20 years ago in this business, all you had to do if you were a newspaper reporter, you write a story, you feed it into one end of an assembly line, an editor edits it, they move it up to the pre-press and the printing print plants, and they you know publish it on paper, deliver it to everybody's door. Now, if you go to you know, where I work, which is the New York Times, what you see is a bunch of Glaston in conference rooms where people with really different skills are working on creating new products. So there might be a traditional word Person like me, a writer, you might see graphic artists, you might see software engineers, you might see business side people trying to figure out how these products are going to work and you know who's going to pay for them um, you you have these uh, groups of people who work together to create products that are really valuable in a digital world, and every one of them has different skills, but what 's crucial is that the people who succeed are able to communicate and collaborate with those people with different skills. If I'm working with a software engineer, I don't know how to program. I can't program, a, you know, create a, an interactive feature or something, but I can work well with them to make that a reality and share what my expertise has to bear. If you can't do that, you're not able to do the job in these organizations that dominate our modern economy.
0: And when you say you can do that, how do you do that? How did you do that?
1: I think the key is at every step of the way, you look for opportunities to to broaden your experience as you're going through your career. It's not a simple matter of taking this class or this training thing. It's a mindset. It's an entire mindset around uh, at every step of the way, you're saying, what is an experience I can have within this job that will allow me to work with people with different skills, cultivate my understanding of their world, and in turn, enrich what I do? And uh, I think that's the difference from an earlier era is you have to be very deliberate, very focused on on making sure each job is stretching yourself laterally in terms of different, specialty, uh, different functional specialties, not just vertically in terms of getting promoted and, and having a more impressive title.
0: I'm speaking today with Neil Irwin. He's a senior economic correspondent at the New York Times and author of the book, How to Win in a Winner-Take-All World. Always find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine & More. With so many great bottles to choose from at the lowest price, it's easy to find your favorite Cabernet or Chardonnay. Or maybe you're more of a whiskey drinker. One of their single barrel bourbons is sure to please. With a little help from one of their friendly guides, find the perfect bottle that's just right for you. Hosting friends or family and don't have time to shop in-store? No problem. Curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. Visit TotalWine.com to learn more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Ask a business owner or manager who's looking to hire someone and they'll often use the word hope. As in, I hope I find someone good. I hope this person works out. You don't want hope. You want to nail this perfectly because the right people can make all the difference to your business. Now you don't need hope. You need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I think makes Indeed special is that it's not just names and resumes. It's a system that guides you through the hiring process to help you get the right candidate for the job. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. You just go to Indeed.com something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So, Neil, we're talking about, you know, adaptability, adapting to a new economy and all. But I've heard I don't remember the exact quote, but I remember hearing that that many people entering the workforce today will end up in careers and jobs that haven't even been invented yet. So how how do you adapt to
1: that? So, look, this idea of adaptability is not just about positioning yourself for the next job, uh, you know, that you might have in a couple of years. Um, You know, my very strongly held belief after all this work I've done, I've gone to all these big companies, done case studies, tried to understand who succeeds. Um, What drives it is the ability to cultivate adaptability. And, you know, I think when we're growing up, we always tend to do whatever we're good at. So if you're good at a certain sport, you keep doing it because you get those positive rewards and you get a big slap on the back. Uh, the crucial thing is you, as you especially in those early stages of your career, whether it 's college early jobs, is uh, stretching yourself in ways that you 're not necessarily comfortable. Uh, you know we all work on different things if you 're not a good public speaker, you work on being a public speaker well i 'm arguing that adaptability is a trait just like that, like public speaking that might be hard for you, but you can get better at by doing it repeatedly and I think the very act of stretching yourself into uncomfortable areas time after time in the early phase of your career leaves you better positioned later on. So if you've been doing that over and over in your 20s and 30s, suddenly in your 40s, 50s, 60s, it doesn't come so, it's not so challenging and not quite as hard as it would be if you had had a much more linear kind of focused uh, pursuit back in the early days.
0: But there's another philosophy that says, play to your strengths, that if you don't like public speaking, don't beat your head against the wall trying to be a public speaker. Forget that and write because that's what you're good at and what you love to do.
1: Yeah, I I understand that impulse, and I I, I, and look, this world does require deep technical expertise. It's not like you can just be a jack of all trades, master of none. I I certainly am am not arguing that you should just flit around from one thing to another all the time. What I am saying is that uh, the narrower your focus, the less likely you are to be that person who can adapt, as you say, as the entire nature of work, the nature of what what the jobs of the future might be, change. Uh, The more uh, focused on a single thing you are, even is, again, it comes very naturally. We all like to do what we're good at. Uh, the more hemmed in and the more limited you're going to be in your ability to adapt as the entire economy, the entire world of work changes further.
0: Well, it is different in the sense that before, if you wanted to be a jeweler or a banker, well, you go learn how to do that. You, you don't really go outside the lines too much. But what you're saying is that in today's economy, you really must go outside the lines.
1: Yeah, so those are two great examples. If you want to be a jeweler, well, a lot of the momentum happening in the jewelry business these days is different uh, online sellers of jewelry that are reinventing the business model of what it means to sell diamond rings. If you look at banking, the terms of competition in the banking industry are more and more around who has the best data analytics, the best capacity to uh, not just make an individual loan decision. You're not a loan officer sitting there deciding, I I like you, I'm going to make you a loan. It's designing the systems that make those decisions millions and millions of times over and over on how much lending to extend to to this person or that person. Um, and, And adapting to that changing structure of those industries is what's crucial if you really want to have that career in the 21st century.
0: There is this fascinating element in almost everyone's career. If you talk to anybody who's successful and have them tell the story of how they got to where they are, there's always at least one moment of total serendipity luck they met a guy who knew a guy they sat next to somebody on the plane that changed their the course of their career and their success does this play into that
1: I think serendipity is um, you know we all have lucky breaks and, and unlucky breaks over the course of a career and the lucky breaks are are you know can, can be really important in having a, a long and, and successful career I think the key is positioning yourself to really uh make the most of those lucky breaks when they arrive and making sure that when you get that call, when you bump into that person on a train, uh, that you really are the person they need and can then get the job done. Uh, you know, it's, it's, so it's not just about being good at uh, talking to strangers. It's really about cultivating ability that, that you actually have the technical skills and you have the chops to, to be brought in and make the most when those, when those lucky breaks arrive.
0: Sometimes I think, though, that people underestimate the level of knowledge that they need. I mean, you know, YouTube is a good example. Podcasting is a good example of a lot of people try it, but there aren't that many that are really good at it and or or, or successful at it.
1: So for example, movie making, look, I have a phone in my pocket that I can shoot video on and even edit that video. Anybody on earth can get the equipment to, to make a movie in theory, but we see over and over again that it actually does favor, uh, the marketplace does favor these very high budget, nine figure budgets, thousands of crew members, uh, the very best actors. Those are the ones that really break through. And we see that in a lot of fields, that information economics tend to favor very large, very uh, you know, elaborate, very complicated processes. You know, take the beer market, right? Uh, you know, on the one hand, you have lots of microbrews out there. Anybody can start up a brewery. Uh, on the other hand, if you actually look at the economics of the beer market in the United States, it is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly dominated by two giant distributors that have a lot of the brands you see in the grocery store. So they're, they're, we're in a weird world where the capacity to make a kind of independent artisanal product is greater than ever, and yet, Oddly, that still tends to end up favoring these very large, very complex organizations.
0: So one of the things that I, I take from what you're saying, and just from my own observation, is that that as technology continues to improve, it's not just that we have to know other things, some other things, that there's other aspects to a business. It's there's tons of new things that in any business, there is now so much more to know.
1: So I think about this in terms of baseball. Uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a baseball fan, not a huge baseball fan. But uh, if you, if you uh, remember the, the Michael Lewis book Moneyball, that kind of put a name on this trend of data and analytics in baseball, where teams have more and more information to decide what players to sign, who to start, how much to pay them, things like that. And, and that's really come uh, miles and miles ever since Moneyball came out. It's really much more complex now than it was back then. Um, and all of that work was done to try and help teams be better that 's why they invested in all these uh, you know radars and, and and complicated things to understand exactly which players are good and which are not as good but what 's happened since then is the smart players are using that analytics, are using that information to make themselves better. So I spoke to Joey Votto, who's a first baseman with the Cincinnati Reds, one of the best hitters in baseball. And and he talks about the ways he processes his own data. He knows exactly what his launch angle is on every pitch, uh, on every hit. He knows exactly when he's uh, missing the ball outside of this part of the strike zone or in that part of the strike zone. Um, And and week to week, day to day, over the course of a season, he is using these analytics to understand the weaknesses in his game and how to fix them and how to get better. And I think there's a real parallel there in the corporate world. So... I found one of these uh, parallels at at Microsoft, so biggest software company on earth, huge company, huge organization. They've done more and more over the last few years trying to use analytics to understand how different teams work, what's working well, what's not. So I went to Redmond, Washington, where, where Microsoft is based, spoke to an executive there who runs their device business. So this is their Surface tablets and laptops, the Xbox. And he had a problem, because he had a situation where his 700 employees, in their surveys, they were not happy with their work-life balance. They were unhappy. These are hard-to-hire engineers. If they start quitting for other companies, that would be really bad news. So he was trying to figure out what was going wrong, and he tried out some different hypotheses. Nothing seemed to check out. It wasn't like there were just a few bad bosses who were hard-charging and making their employees miserable. It's not like it was just the employees who had to fly to China all the time who were unhappy. Um, Nothing seemed to to make any sense. So they worked with the the analytics group at Microsoft to to analyze uh, email and calendar patterns. They used the metadata to see, okay, how is this team different in how they use their time, how they communicate than other teams at Microsoft where people are happier? And, And they found a surprising thing. On this particular team, they were spending way more time in these giant meetings. They were spending an average of 27 hours a week in meetings with lots of people in them. And what they concluded is the reason people were unhappy with their work-life balance is because they spent their whole workday in these giant meetings not getting their work done. And then people had to get, catch up on things and do individual work in the evenings and on the weekends. So they had fewer meetings and they, and they fixed the problem. But I think this is a great example of how we can all be the equivalent of of Joey Votto of the Cincinnati Reds. We're using the data that's available to us to make ourselves better at our jobs. And I think that's just a powerful lesson that all of us need to to internalize and become just avid consumers of analytics that tell us how we are effective, where we're ineffective, how we can fix it.
0: And it certainly seems as if there is no industry that's immune from these changes, really, and everyone is going to have to keep up in order to compete. Uh, Neil Irwin's been my guest. He is a senior economic correspondent at the New York Times, and his book is How to Win in a Winner-Take-All World. You'll find a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Neil.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me.
0: No matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax experts make them count. Did you maybe buy a second property to rent out? That's a move. Did you go back to school to get your degree? That, too, is a move a smart move. Did you commute to work across state lines? You see, that's a move. Did you relocate for a fresh start? Well, that's the definition of a move. Maybe you moved into a houseboat instead of a house house. Or perhaps you crushed it in the stock market in 2023. TurboTax experts make all your moves count.
2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: As you have no doubt noticed, some advertising seems to work. Some seems to work really well, but a lot of advertising fails. So with all the thousands of advertising and marketing messages you're exposed to, why is it you respond to some of that advertising, but not to other advertising? Well, it may have a lot to do with human behavior, behavior that a lot of advertising people don't understand. That's according to Neil Martin, who has been examining this for a long time. He is a consultant and author of the book Habit, The 95% of Behavior Marketers Ignore. Hey, Neil, welcome. So start with the premise here of why so much advertising and marketing doesn't work.
2: As a Ph.D. in marketing, I was very frustrated with how much of marketing theory wasn't working in the real world. And when I uncovered this line of research from neuroscience that most of our behavior is unconscious, it explained a lot of what I had discovered in terms of why satisfied customers leave, why most new products fail, and why it's very hard to translate advertising into revenues.
0: Which so often happens, and, that, and that's one of the criticisms of so much advertising is that it costs more to create and buy the advertising than the company ever makes back in, in dollars because it's so ineffective.
2: Well, a, a terrifying statistic is that uh, advertisers pay for 4,500 messages per person per day in this country. That's an advertisement every 14 seconds, uh, every 14 seconds for every man, woman, and, and child you know breathing in the U.S. And what we do, and, and as a survival mechanism, is we learn to ignore it. And and in large part, that is an adaptive mechanism that that the brain does to. Filter out irrelevant information, and so advertisers are kind of in in that uh, nightmare scenario where they have to yell louder and louder to get noticed. And as soon as they yell louder, we just ratchet up what our filters screen out, and that becomes this um, this really wasted amount of revenue. And, and I think advertisers in the U.S. spend about 150 billion dollars a year on advertising, and they know a large percentage of that is wasted. And it's not that it's that it's totally ineffective; it's that they don't know what part's working and what part
0: isn't. And so, how do you figure that out? How do you know what parts are working and what parts aren't?
2: Well, I think that the big thing to do is to realize that that you have to you have to connect with people emotionally, and and that means you have to tell a, a really well integrated story about yourself, and you, you have to make that message consistent so that you create um, a brand position inside of customers' minds. Because what the customer wants to do is to simplify his life or to simplify her life. And so if she's shopping, then she wants to make her decisions as quickly as possible. She doesn't want to go through a massive evaluation process. Um, If you're going online to um, buy... You know a uh, you know, headphones or speakers or whatever you don't want to spend you know ten fifteen hours in research. What you want to do is make a good decision as quickly as possible when advertising facilitates us making good decisions quickly then it's then it's helping us. but what's happened is because so much of advertising is self serving that we have a tendency to discount it to disbelieve it, and therefore it's not helping us make decisions
0: What is it that advertisers are doing that as you describe it, is self-serving and, and what would be a better way to do it?
2: Well, the the big thing is to recognize that word of mouth is much more powerful than advertising because if, if I tell somebody this is a good movie, I don't get anything if they go to it. So obviously, if, if you're trying to sell me something, you're going to derive revenue. So that's what's in it for you, but what's in it for me? When an advertisement actually helps me by educating me to be to make a better decision, So, you know, the way an advertiser can do this is to say, I'm not the best, you know, I'm not the best insurance company for everybody, but if you are, you know, a young couple just starting out, we're the perfect company for you. Because what you've just done is you've just told lots of people, don't waste your time coming to me. So you're helping me. You're saying, don't waste your time on me. I'm not for you. But then you're also creating credibility with that young couple because you're saying, I have designed a package just for where you are in life. And that's where I think that a lot of companies don't ever want to say no to customers, because they don't want to lose potential sales. But those companies that recognize and develop the discipline to say, you know, these are the customers we serve well, these are going to be our customers, and to focus on serving those well, as opposed to trying to serve a lot of people um, not so well.
0: Well, if what you say is true, why do you suppose there is so much misinformation then within the advertising and marketing community about what works and what doesn't work?
2: The problem is that a lot of marketing theory, which came out of the 1960s, was based on a misunderstanding of how people really make decisions. And I had the privilege of working with some of these pioneers, and and they were doing the best they could at that time with with kind of the very beginnings of cognitive science. But what we've learned in the last 15 years about the way the brain works is really revolutionary and, and eclipses everything we knew before with the whole idea of, of understanding that what you're trying to do is to work with the unconscious mind of the customer, because that's the part of the mind that's making most of the decisions.
0: But what does all this have to do with habit? I mean, that's the name of your book, Habit, but I, I, I'm not seeing the connection yet.
2: Well, that's the thing about it, is that when you look at, at this idea of, of habits, what you discover, and out and of pioneering work from uh, MIT and some people at UCLA and Duke who, who uh, spent some time with me, um, is that there's a part of your brain that, that develops habits. And you can think about it like getting in your car, fastening your seatbelt, backing out of the driveway, making coffee, all of the daily routine things that you do that are so automatic they don't require conscious intervention. I mean you've you've driven down the road at some point and not been able to remember the last five miles you drove, right? And you kinda go, how did I do that? How did I how did I navigate this car five miles with no idea, with no conscious intervention? But that's the norm. That's the way you shop. That's the way you do most things. And and that we're not aware of it because, you know, our conscious brain can't access those processes. And there's a part of your brain in the limbic region that develops these habits, and once a habit is, is encoded, it's much more powerful than your intentions. That's why most of us are overweight. I think 60% of Americans are overweight, and if you go up to ask them, they say, oh yeah, I want to lose weight, but they don't, and some people think they're weak and they're bad and all these other kind of things, but the reality is they are you know, really under the sway of these very powerful unconscious habits that you know, is operating faster and quicker than their conscious brain is even aware.
0: But some people do break out of those habits, and they do lose weight.
2: Well, and that's the key. I mean, that when you look at how do you do that, and, and, and a large part of this is to understand that when you create a habit, you're strengthening these neural connections and these, these very powerful places in your brain. And once those connections are set, they don't go away. So if you don't reinforce it, it can become dormant. It's like a, a somebody who's quit smoking. Uh, and then maybe two or three years that just there's just something happens and they just reach for a cigarette and if they start that smoking again they are right back in that throes of that addiction so the way to realize you know how do i change a habit is to recognize that you have to overlay another habit on top of the old one and that has to become stronger and and so if you're trying to lose weight or if you're trying to you know if you're uh, trying to break through a competitors hold on a market what you have to do is to really start working first with the conscious mind to say, "Say this is what I'm trying to do. And then you have to proactively start developing the same kinds of habits which are formed through repetition over time. And, um, you know, so one one example for the losing weight thing as a metaphor for the business side of this. But, you know, you can, you know, wait until you're hung, you know, when you're hungry to make sure that you have, uh, that That the good food is just as easy to get to as the bad food, I mean a candy bar is so easy to eat you know make sure that you have uh cut up you know some turkey the day before that you can you know have and you know take with you or that you have some um some carrots or something that are in a, in a bag with you, and that that when you have that cue that would normally get you to look for you know go to the vending machine that you have something there and then consciously you start off eating that thing and it's not going to fulfill you the way candy bar wood, or potato chips. But over time, that's going to become, that's going to taste good to you. And over time, that's going to be as natural to you as as potato chips. And then when you go to try to eat a potato chip, it's too salty. Or if you try to eat a candy bar, it's too sweet, because over time, your taste buds have, have gone through that kind of change. And it's the same thing if you're trying to, to take a customer uh, away from a competitor, to realize that's a very hard thing to do, because they have these entrenched habits. And you have to kind of dislodge that habit, elevate it to conscious awareness, and then sort of make an appeal to the conscious mind when you've you've broken the habit, you know, for that time period. And that's that's that short window of opportunity. uh, You have to win them over.
0: Well, one great example I know you talk about, and it's appropriate because this is a podcast, is the original iPod when Apple came out with it.
2: You know, when they started with the iPod, that section of the music industry was very small, maybe $100 million total. And they, they developed a player that was so intuitive, that worked so well with the way your unconscious brain works, so that you, you, know, you could give an iPod to somebody, not tell them how to use it, and within five or ten minutes they'd figured it out. But the big thing was iTunes, how when as soon as you, you know, plug a CD into your computer, iTunes launches, takes all your music in, and then syncs it to that device. So you developed an incredibly powerful habit around listening to music this way. And to the point now where most kids, the idea of buying a CD is just bizarre. I mean, why would you buy a CD? You know, why would you have a CD player? Why would you want to be limited to you know, 10 or 12 songs? Um, and, and to the point where they own that category, and I think they've become the number one um, music retailer in the United States now because they've captured our habits.
0: But don't you think that people form habits around different kinds of things? I mean, in in the case of the iPod, it was so intuitive that people quickly formed a habit around that that became their way of consuming music. But if you're an airline, it's going to be hard to get people to develop a habit of buying tickets on your airline when so many people have already developed the habit and continue to have the habit of buying the cheapest ticket regardless of what airline?
2: Well, you've asked two or three really good questions there. And, and, and you know, it's not like your, your conscious brain is, is on vacation and can't be brought into play. A lot of decisions that we've made over and over were originally made consciously and then became unconscious. You know, you, you chose your dry cleaner for a reason. You chose your grocery store for a reason. But most of those reasons are, are normally about convenience even something that's a very highly involved purchase like an automobile or a house you're you're still basically most people are trying to simplify that decision because we we can't we get overwhelmed with the amount of details with the amount of information and so the um so we're always trying to simplify that decision so the house may come down to boy I love the master you know the master bedroom is just great reality is of course it, it had to be in the right school district it has to be in, in the right price range it has to you know so there's a lot of these kind of you know, screens, but then there's this emotional reaction to that one thing that makes that house stand out over all the others. Now, you talk about like the airlines thing. It, it's the same kind of thing. If I'm an infrequent flyer, um, but how do I get that ticket? Do I go to Orbitz? Do I go to United? And if I go to United, then United owns me. I mean, they have a really good chance of selling me that ticket. But if I go to Orbitz, then it might be Delta. It might be American. Uh, is my is my priority around um, you know what time I fly or is it around price or is it around frequent flyer programs and so it immediately gets complicated again, and so what we're trying to do if we fly a lot, then we're going to try to really simplify that and we're going to say i'm going to i'm going to use this this website each time because I know how this website behaves I don't have to relearn it. Does that make sense
0: yeah sure and and it seems from what you're saying is th- that the more we have to do something the more flights we have to book, the more trips to the grocery store we have to take, the simpler we want it.
2: And it's all about this idea of, of being, you know, cognitively efficient, and that we don't have, and we are inundated with information. We have so much information that we are, we are completely overwhelmed. And the problem a lot of companies have is that they have, like, really smart engineers who work with a, a product or an idea for a long time, and it becomes very, very natural to them. But it's very unnatural to the the user, and this is in business-to-business sales, and and what you you consistently see is the companies that make it easy and make it convenient uh, are the ones that win, and not necessarily ones with the best product.
0: Aren't there products, though, where it just doesn't really matter? You know, it's a commodity. A pencil is a pencil. You need to buy pencils, you buy a pencil
2: um yeah and, and when you talk about commodities but why but but it comes back to the same thing that if you make it why do you buy the pencil you buy uh, well and, and let me let me be real real clear about this i mean the, the whole point of this is to is to really try to help companies rethink how they approach their customers what i'm trying to get companies to do is to think more about behavior than attitude when i was uh, um, interviewing the, some folks up at duke who had been studying this and and they were really startled to discover that, you know, habits went out over intentions. If you have a strong habit and you have an intention, so most, of, and most of your habits are going to be in line with your intentions. That's why, that's why they formed. But let's say that you have a very strong habit, um, you know, to eating chocolate or whatever, and then you have this intention of wanting to get in shape, that, you know, you can bring your, your mental energy to bear and you can be good for a couple of days. But then most people lapse back. And that's, and that's that power of the habits. And so if you're talking about is there a specific product that that is immune to this, I think anything that you buy repeatedly, you're trying your brain is going to try to make that an automatic process. When something's novel, then the conscious brain gets involved to solve the problem.
0: What about products or services or things that are not habitual? I mean, say you're going to take a cruise. You probably don't do that very often. It's a very intentional thing to sit down and read the brochures and go online and check out the websites. I mean, it, there's nothing habitual about it.
2: Absolutely. And and what we get into though is and and, and that's a and, and that's a beautiful example. It's a beautiful example. So something I haven't done before, it's a it's a cruise. So I get a brochure, you now do I start looking online? You know, how do you pick which cruise line to go with? You know, are you going to shop based on price? Are you going to shop based on um, convenience? Are you going to shop based on... And, and it's a very cognitive decision, but there's another, there's another aspect of habits, which we call heuristics. And heuristics are like little rules that we develop over time, and most of them are sort of unconscious. So you go in, and your favorite cereal's on sale, so you stock up. You know, you go in... I, I, I shop at a grocery store that has these little, you know, sale, yellow, sale stickers under things. And I sort of you know, shop the store based on those yellow stickers because it could be a huge you know, price difference. Now, it's not like can I not afford a $5 box of cereal, but the cereal manufacturer has trained me that I should only buy their cereal when it's on sale because it's on sale for like $3, so it's a huge savings. And so that's the whole idea of developing this rule in your brain. So when you come to something that's novel like a cruise, it doesn't mean that you, you are not using some of your heuristics. So you may look at, like, the different prices for um, the size of rooms. So, if, you know, you have a cabin, then you have a cabin that has a window, then you have a cabin that has a porch, and then you have a cabin that's, you know, got a suite all the way up. And, and so most of us kind of have, if we look at, like, five choices, you know, some of us are going to say, I'm going to pick the third, you know, the third most expensive one. Because that's the one where I'm probably going to get most of what I really want without the stuff that just makes it too expensive. While other people would go, you know what? I'm not going to spend that much time in my stateroom, or you know, doing whatever. So I'm going to get the cheapest one, and then and and, and they'll just think about a price rule. And so it's not that that you're not your conscious brain's not involved, but that your conscious brain is still leaning on a lot of these unconscious rules that you've developed over the years to help you kind of deal with complexity.
0: And since everybody has different rules and different criteria, if if you were someone who makes a product and you just say, we're the best for everybody, you're missing the point.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think if, if you create a position in somebody's mind that you're the best um, at what you do, I, I think that's fine as long as it's fairly narrowly focused. But to say, like, you know, we're the best, you know, you can think through, like, business hotels, um, you know, why would you stay at Marriott versus Sheraton? Is it because the beds are more comfortable? You know, is it because you know over time it's basically, you know, if they've got hotels in my cities and I can kind of really simplify my my booking process, I know that website, then you know I get on I, I get on their frequent point system, and, you know, and I just get locked in because I don't want to have to think about it every time I do it. So...
0: Aren't there a lot of people though who? really like variety. And so maybe you don't want to stay in the same hotel every time you go on business, even though you could, maybe you want to go on a different cruise line just to see what they have to offer. And so trying to sell that person, it would seem to come back to your cruise ship or come back to your hotel, that, that's, a tough, that's a tough sell. And it does seem like an awful lot of people like that variety.
2: When we look at variety, most of us are variety seeking about some things, but we're not all the time variety seeking. So, in other words, I may be out there, I, I, I really like dark chocolate. So, I, I might be really interested in trying out different things with dark chocolate. But, you know, I'm not, I I'm, I'm, have no interest in trying new coffee. I've got my coffee, I'm fine. I don't, I, I have, there's no, there's no novelty seeking in my coffee, you know, pursuit. The big thing to recognize is that when people do something which is a variety-seeking thing, they very rarely make the thing that they're you know, going after for variety into a habit. And so I may get a lot of people who will try something, but that doesn't mean I've been successful. I think the best example of this is Zima. Um, Zima had an unbelievably successful advertising campaign that you know, got more than 50% of people who drank alcohol in the U.S. tried Zima. Once. Very few people tried it the second time. And so they were incredibly successful at at getting us to try it, but horrible about making that into a routine purchase.
0: Well, it's interesting how people think and how they make choices and compare that to how marketers and advertisers think people think and make choices and how sometimes that all comes together and sometimes it doesn't. Neil Martin has been my guest. He is a marketer, a consultant, and author of the book Habit, The 95% of Behavior Marketers Ignore. And you will find a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Neil. I'll bet you've wondered whether or not you should turn off your air conditioner when you leave the house or leave it running. If the house gets hot, then the A.C. has to work really hard later on to cool it back down. So maybe it's better to keep the temperature constant all day long, even though no one's home. Well, apparently, that's not true. Apparently, the most efficient course of action is to turn it off when you leave the house. It may seem like a waste of energy, but it actually saves you a fair amount of money. It also helps your air conditioner work more efficiently, according to the American Council for an Energy-Efficient Economy. Air conditioning systems run most efficiently when they're running at full speed, rather than running for short periods of time at a less powerful speed to maintain a constant temperature all day long. They're also better able to dehumidify your house when they're running full blast. And that is something you should know. And now that you've heard this episode of the podcast, if you found it interesting, helpful, or insightful, please share it with a friend. I'm Mike Ruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. No matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax experts make them count. Did you maybe buy a second property to rent out? That's a move. Did you go back to school to get your degree? That, too, is a move, a smart move. Did you commute to work across state lines? You see, that's a move. Did you relocate for a fresh start? Well, that's the definition of a move. Maybe you moved into a house boat instead of a house house. Or perhaps you crushed it in the stock market in 2023. Turbo tax experts make all your moves count, getting you every credit and deduction you deserve, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. Switch to TurboTax, make your moves, and they will make them count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live.